If you have a Bible, turn it to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, also Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called. Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They pronounced false witnesses, or produced false witnesses, who testified This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw his face was like the face of an angel. Now if you would move down. Chapter 7, verse 51. This comes at the end of a speech that Stephen had made to the Sanhedrin in his defense. He had outlined the Jewish faith to them and had done it quite well. And he picks up then shifting his comments to the Sanhedrin. Verse 51. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You are just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was given through the angels, but have not obeyed it. When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, They were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, 
looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. They dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Thank the Lord for his word. Our lives are rich because we have lessons from the past to build on. History teaches us, sometimes positively, sometimes negatively. It comes to us through the stories of those who have gone before us. And history is a wonderful thing. My my family's been learning about its history. My uncle, my dad's brother, uh, has always been interested in genealogy. And for some reason, he decided recently that he would start researching my mother's family line. Not his family line, my mother's. And so I know a whole lot more about my family than I knew six weeks ago. It's history. It's a good thing. I I learned that one of my... uh, ancestors. His name was Felix. He's buried very near where I grew up, which none of us knew. We also learned he was really wealthy, and none of us got any of that. But history teaches us. It teaches you. It teaches me. That's true in every arena of life. We learn from the stories of the past. They give us wisdom. Knowledge, understanding. That's true in our faith. It's true in Christianity. It's why we read the Bible. We learn the stories and biographies of great women and men of faith. And they teach us and they help us. Last week we looked at the story of the spies who were sent into the promised land and the faith that they were asked to live by and how they Succeeded and failed in doing that. Today we're looking at the story of a a man named Stephen. We learn from his history. He was the very first Christian martyr. He was the first one who, because of his stand for Jesus, laid down his life because he refused to turn his back on Jesus. He appears early in the development of Christian church. He's recognized as one full of the Spirit and wisdom. And he is assigned a task, a very specific task, of seeing that a group of widows were properly cared for. You see, the church always confronts injustice. It always does. It always stands on on the side of God's justice and God's goodness. And the early church took on the responsibility of caring for its widows. A group of them was being overlooked. 
We have no way of knowing if that was intentional or not, but the circumstances are worthy of note. Those being overlooked were from a group called Hellenistic Jews. Maybe you all know who, that, who those people were, but just in case you don't, uh, these were a group of Jewish people who their ancestors had been scattered throughout the, the world because of what uh, scholars call the diaspora or the great scattering. It happened at many points along the history of the Jewish people. One of them, if you're knowledgeable of the Bible, you'll remember when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came and, and brought all of the, not all, but almost all of the Jewish people back to Babylon and intermingled them. And it happened over and over again throughout history. The Jewish people were scattered. So they grew up in a different culture, in a different place, and they learned the languages of the place over time where, where they lived. In the course of time, many of them would make their way back to Jerusalem. But when they came back, they didn't know the customs of the people of the Holy Land. They hadn't lived there. They hadn't grown up there. Uh, Just like you may not know the customs of different places in our country because you didn't live there or grow up there. You might not know that in Dayton, Ohio, it's called pop, not soda. Or if you live in Cape Girardeau, Missouri, you wouldn't say soda, you'd say sodi. Things are different. Things change. And so this group of Hellenistic Jews were people who had grown up in the Greek world. They understand Greek culture. They speak the Greek language. They don't know the Hebrew language. But they've made their way back to their ancient homeland, the homeland of their ancestors. And it appears that as they made their way back, as would be natural, they still kind of congregated in those groupings of people who shared their values, their culture, their traditions, their language. And in the Jewish people, that meant there was a group of Hellenistic Jews who who understood Greek culture and spoke the Greek language. And then there were the, the group of people that had grown up there in the Hebraic culture of Jerusalem, and they spoke Hebrew. And, and there was an interesting back and forth with that. Some of that back and forth was that those Hebraic Jews, oh, they, they took pride in the fact that they had grown up in the homeland of the great forefathers of their faith, the patriarchs. They spoke Hebrew. And if you read between the lines a little bit of the history of what's going on there, you get the impression, sometimes more than impression, that those Hebraic Jews kind of held it over the Hellenistic Jews. They were a little better because they'd always lived in the Promised Land. They thought a little more of themselves because they spoke the tongue of the fathers of their faith. And it created this little dilemma. People from both of those groups, though, began to hear the message about Jesus. And as they heard the message, and they gave their life to him, they embraced Christianity. But because of language, because of culture, they still kind of identified in their little groups, Hellenistic, Hebraic, even once they had become Christians. And so those Greek-speaking Christians came forward to say, hey, help us. 
we're supposed to be feeding all of the widows, but, but the ladies in our little group, from our little culture, from our little microcosm of who we are, they're not being fed. And so the apostles, the 12, as the scripture identifies them, says this is not right. They must be fed. They're a part of our Christian family. We don't overlook anyone. We treat everyone justly. We treat everyone the same. Here's how we're going to address the issue, and we're going to make sure our widows don't go hungry. It's kind of an interesting moment because it teaches us a lot. But the point to remember, injustice was corrected. The problem was fixed. There would be no favoritism shown because one spoke one language and another another. One grew up in one place, another in a different place. None of that would make any sense. Not in Christian faith. The church has forever been a voice to speak into injustice. And we need to speak into it today. And we need to speak loudly. The events of the past weeks, even months, in our country have been disheartening to us. Our citizens are afraid, especially our African-American citizens, our Jewish citizens. Uh, things are happening around us. There's violence. There's uh, discord, there's strife. Our, our president continually missteps at the least, or at the other end of the continuum, depending on where you think he needs to fit. He appears to embrace ideologies that are abhorrent at most, but there's definitely a problem. And the church needs to speak. I grew up singing this song. Many of you will know it. Jesus loves the little children. What's the next line? All the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. I grew up being taught that. You did too, whether or not you knew the song, if you grew up in the church. You were taught that we're all God's children. We all belong to him. We all have an equal place. There's no difference because of the hue of our skin or the place where we were born. There's no difference because of the language we speak. We are one in Christ Jesus. I never learned other verses. Actually, I didn't even know until I was adult that there were other verses of that song. Basically, all they did in the other verses was change the first line and then continue on with the lyric that we all know. The second verse began, Jesus died for all of the children. The third verse, Jesus rose for all the children. Sometimes we forget, I think, that our hero, our Messiah, our Savior was a Jewish man from the Middle East. His followers have always believed 
that we are all one. As the early church began to live that out, beginning here at at, uh, Stephen, actually not even really beginning there, it began before that with some things that the Spirit prompted the church about. But as they began to live that out, they began to rephrase it and say it in other ways, but they kept that value of we are all one in Christ alive. The Apostle Paul said it this way in Galatians chapter 3. He said, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Hmm. We need to speak, and we need to speak loudly. We cannot allow the injustice of racism and bigotry to go unchallenged in our culture. The church needs to stand. You ask how? How does our little group of people make a difference in this great big issue? Well, let me suggest one way. Reach across the barrier. Build a relationship. Be on the lookout from someone who is different from you in whatever way that difference manifests itself and begin to listen and talk and build a relationship and build a friendship and build trust in the world and build peace by doing so. This week I had a conversation with a friend. Uh, He and I are new friends. We haven't known each other long and we don't know a lot about each other. I knew that he was not of a Christian faith. And we had a conversation about what's happening. And pretty much the conversation really turned into just me listening because he had much to say. And I was able to see the world from a different perspective through his eyes. I was able to see some of the fears that he has and why they're valid and genuine, why they're real, why there is so much emotion tied up with some of the things that have happened in the last week, because he's lived in a different way, with a different understanding. And I began to see some things, and to look at some things I knew, but have a new facet, like turning a dime in a different way, and seeing another picture another way, because I listened to someone who's different from me, and I could see the injustice that he was explaining and understand why he is so frightened of what's happening in our country. I would encourage you, actually, if you don't remember anything else from today, here's the one thing I'd like you to do. I'd like you to find someone different than you and build a friendship. That difference might be racial, it might be language, it might be any number of things. But find someone different than you and begin to listen to them and build friendship, break down a barrier, and help build peace in our world. The church has always confronted injustice, and we need to continue to do so. Stephen taught us that. His first assignment given by the 12 was you need to make sure that 
this issue of justice is taken care of so that these women don't starve. Feed them. Take care of them. The church has always called people to live in a life in the Spirit. We read Stephen's story, and we, we see it several times where it says that he was filled with the Spirit of God. He lived in the power of the Spirit of God. And the evidence of his Spirit is evident whenever you read his story. You see his wisdom. You see his boldness. You find that as the section that I missed that you might read on your own sometime, the section that I left out, uh, you see his wisdom there. But people were coming to him because the Spirit of God was evident in his life. The Scripture says he performed many wonders and signs. We don't know what those wonders and signs are, but we could probably reasonably assume that they're the same kinds of things that we see Jesus doing and others doing, recorded in Scripture, praying for people and they're healed, turning things because the Spirit of God was upon him. The church has always called people to live a life in the Spirit. I think another way we see it in, in Stephen is that little line that says, says everyone was questioning him and basically he was on trial for his faith in Jesus. Even though the word trial isn't used there, that's what was happening. It says, as the Sanhedrin spoke, they looked upon him and they saw the face of an angel. How do you keep a peaceful disposition in all of the struggle he was experiencing in that moment? It's only because of the Spirit of God in him. It kept him at peace, kept him calm, kept him knowing that no matter the outcome, he was Christ's and Christ was his. And we all are to be people who live in the Spirit of Christ. Do you have the deep sense that the Holy Spirit resides in you? Do you know that? Are you experiencing that? Are you hearing his voice guide you through life? Are you experiencing the peace and the joy, the kindness, the goodness, the fellowship of the Spirit in your life? Do do you have that sense of, of confidence even though you find yourself in a troubling situation? The Spirit of God gives you that. And I encourage you today, don't leave this room without inviting him again into your life to walk with you, to help you, to be your guide, your counselor, your friend. You need the Holy Spirit in your life. You do. The church always calls people to live life in the Spirit. Stephen teaches us a number of other things, but one more I will talk about. He teaches us that the church always practices forgiveness. If I were to explain this story, or even read it for myself, without understanding the spiritual dimensions of the story, we we would look at it and say, how could someone who's being stoned to death offer forgiveness to the ones who are throwing the rocks? And yet, that's what Stephen did. 
he fell on his knees and he cried out, Lord, do not hold this against them. See, as Christians, Stephen models for us that no matter what comes our way in life, when we're right in the spirit, we can live with a forgiving, compassionate heart toward others. What's forgiveness? It's simply this, and and I don't know whose definition this is. It's not mine. Uh, It was in my files and uncredited, but it's this. Forgiveness is one person's moral response to another's injustice. One person's moral response to another's injustice. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Who do you need to forgive? Who's hurt you? Whose injustice has caused you pain? Stephen shows us that the path of Christian living, of following Jesus, is a path of forgiveness. And if Stephen can forgive in that moment, then by the grace of God and the empowering of the Holy Spirit, we can learn to forgive. We can let go of the pain and the bitterness that comes our way because of another's injustice toward us. Jack Cornfield found himself on a train one day from Washington to Philadelphia. He was seated next to a man who worked for the State Department in India, but he had quit to run a rehabilitation program for juvenile defenders in Washington, D.C. Most of the youths he worked with were gang members who had committed murders. And as Jack sat there, this man next to him relayed a story that he was familiar with an event that had happened to one of the offenders that was in his program. He was a 14-year-old boy, and he had shot and killed an innocent teenager to prove himself to his gang. The mother of the victim sat quietly all through the trial and listened until the very end, and the teenager was convicted of killing her son. After the verdict was announced, she stood up and slowly and directly, looking at him, said, I'm going to kill you. The youth was taken away to serve several years in the juvenile facility that the man next to Jack on the train had started. After the first half year, the mother started visiting this young man who had killed her son. He'd been living on the streets before the killing, trying to get a part of, become a part of the gang, and she was the only visitor he had had. They talked for a while, and when she would leave, she would give him some money for things that he could buy in the, in the little concession that was available to the, the men, the teens that lived in that place. Then she started step by step to visit him more regularly. And she would bring him food 
and small gifts. Near the end of his sentence, she asked him what he would be doing when he got out. He was confused. He was uncertain. He'd been on the streets before and there was still no one to help him. And so she offered to help him by setting him up with a job in a friend's company. Then she inquired about where he would live. He had nowhere to go. So she offered him temporary use of the spare room in her house. For eight months he lived there. He ate her food. He lived in her home. He worked at the job that she had helped him secure. Then one evening she called him into the living room to have a conversation. She sat down opposite him and waited for him to arrive. And when he came in, he sat down and and she started. Do you remember the courtroom that day? Do you remember what I said to you? And he said, oh, yes, I remember very clearly. Very clearly. I'll never forget that moment. You said you would kill me. Well, I did, she went on. I didn't want the boy who would kill my son for no reason to remain alive on this earth. I wanted him to die. That's why I started to visit you and bring you things. That's why I got you a job and let you live in my house. That's how I set about changing you. And that old boy, he's gone. He's dead. So now I want to ask you, since my son is gone, and since that killer is gone. I want to ask you if you'll stay here with me. I've got room. I'd like to adopt you to be my son. And she became the mother of a dead boy who came to life because she forgave. She became the mother he never had because he found forgiveness. That story sounds hard to believe until you look at the story of Stephen. The story of Stephen sounds hard to believe until you remember Jesus who dying on a cross said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The lesson of Christianity, the lesson of faith, the lesson of Stephen to us today is that the church always calls us to live in the state of forgiveness. To extend it, to give it, to release the injustices that come our way so that not only is the person who committed the act set free, but so that those of us, when we have been hurt and tarnished and blamed and wronged because of our own sinful acts, so that we can be forgiven. That story is told in Kornfeld's book, Ecstasy, or After the Ecstasy, The Laundry. Interesting title. So what do we learn from Stephen? We learn from him that as 
people of faith, people who follow Jesus, that we need to be involved in bringing justice to the injustices of the world around us. And it's not enough just to look at the pictures and listen to the news and say, oh, that shouldn't happen. We need to find ways to engage and to speak against injustice and bring right where wrong exists, to bring love and grace where evil is holed up. And we need to be people who are filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And we need to be people who practice forgiveness. Here's my concern. My concern is, and it's often my concern when I give a talk, My concern is that we'll all leave this place and for about an hour or two we'll remember what Pastor Jerry said and we'll say, well, that was a nice sermon. And we'll move on. I don't want us to do that. I I want us to get involved in whatever way there's an opportunity, a place, an opening for you to begin to work against the evils of injustice Even if it's as simple as building a bridge to someone different from yourself so that you can start understanding the world from another person's perspective, from a place you've never been nor never can be, because you're different, and they're different. You know, in our community, it's not hard to find someone different than us. It's not hard. They're all around us. You just have to be willing to reach out and say hi. Hi. How are you? And build a friendship. I hope we don't forget. And we don't just say, oh, that was nice. Pastor's concerned that we have the Holy Spirit in our life. I hope you really will invite the Holy Spirit to come in today. Fresh, new, whether it's the first time or the thousandth time you've asked him to come into your life. Let the Holy Spirit be your guide, your mentor, your teacher, your source of strength. Then maybe it's a name that's popped into your head as you've listened to the stories. Or maybe it's an event that you've held on to and that you're struggling with because it hurt you. Maybe it's time to forgive, to let go, to be set free. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for Stephen. For the man you created him to be, a man filled with the Spirit, a man who was able to do wonders and signs that gave evidence of who you are. Thank you for him. And thank you that through the power of the Spirit, his biography has been included for us to know so that we can learn from him. Lord, help us today. Help us to trust that you're at work in the world around us and that you can use us to make a difference in the injustices that we see. Help us today to live in the power of your Spirit, even if that power is the only thing that enables us to forgive someone who's hurt us. Lord, help us to be there, to live there, to be free to be filled with your life. Thank you, Lord.
In your name we pray. Amen. Yeah.